Hello, welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist here at the IFG. And I'm really delighted today to be joined by Angela Knight, who is the current chair of the Office for Tax Simplification, um, although will shortly be stepping down once her successor has been appointed. Um, before uh, her time at the OTS, uh, Angela was initially, between 1992 and 1997, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Erewash, and from 95 to 97 served as the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. In addition to her role at the OTS, she now serves an un a huge number, and she was just telling me, um, of other positions across private sector organisations, and including for new authority in Kazakhstan. Um, regulatory, sorry, regulatory, not tax. Um, now, Tax is a subject that is close to IFG's heart. Uh, in the past, colleagues have published a report in 2017 looking at how to improve the budgetary making process in co collaboration with the IFS and with the Chartered Institute of Taxation. And we are starting a new project here looking at the barriers to tax reform and how we might overcome some of those. So this is very much a, a subject that we're very interested in. And therefore, I'm delighted that Angela is able to be here with us today to reflect on her time as chair of the OTS um, and, uh, I guess, the, the successes and the challenges of, of trying to simplify the tax system in the UK. Um, so the way we'll run it today is uh, Angela will have about 10 to 15 minutes for opening remarks. I'll then pose a few questions to her from up here and then open to plenty of questions and answers, I hope, uh, from all of you. So, Angela. Well, thank you very much, Gemma. And when it comes to questions from all of you, as it is, I see a number of tax experts in the room. I see uh, past, uh, current, and no doubt future members of the OTS. So <laughs> I suspect that any of the questions, you'll be able to answer them much better uh, yourselves than I ever will. Now, I'm going to reflect at the moment uh, a little bit of my time at the OTS, but I think it's rather worthwhile just thinking about why it was set up in the first instance. And the answer is it's kind of typical opposition politics. So in effect, what happened was George Osborne, before he came to power, when he was in opposition, did what all opposition polit politicians do, and that is they say, we've got to have a policy in every area. And of course, the obvious two areas, as far as you know, the Treasury finance was concerned, was we're going to make sure that all the, all the estimates that government make are independent from now on, and we're going to simplify tax, and then we have the 2010 election. In comes the Conservative or the Coalition government. In comes uh, George Osborne. And so they set up, first of all, the Office of Budget Responsibility, i.e. putting out all those estimates to a third party. And then, of course, they looked at tax simplification and saw the height of the tax code. And it's at that point that people sort of stand there and go, ooh, what do we do about this one? Trying to simplify tax, of course, is nothing new. I recall all those, uh, all those uh, years ago um, when I was working for Ken Clark that there was this idea, and I'm not sure who sold it to him or whether he sold it to others, that if you went outside the Treasury and outside uh, Westminster and Whitehall and you got third parties to write at least some parts of your finance bill, it would be simpler, it would be clearer, it would be more coherent, and what do you know, it wasn't. And then, of course, you know, at the end of the 1990s, right up until uh, 2010, we had the tax law rewrite project. Again, it was trying to make it clear and all those sorts of things. To a certain extent, it did. It made it longer, but it did maybe make it clearer. But I use those two examples because, actually, 
trying to simplify tax, trying to make clear has been around a very long time and it's not straightforward. There's a number of reasons why it'll never be straightforward. I mean, the first is we're an international trading nation. You know, we deal right around the world. We have stuff coming in, tangible goods. We have stuff coming in, you know, via the internet. This is not straightforward. It's not going to get any easier. It'll just get more complicated. And the second is every finance bill, of course, is not a standalone entity in its own right. It amends previous bills. So it's not like you're taking through a discrete start soup to nuts piece of legislation. You're taking through something that amends something else that amends something else, usually because clever lawyers and clever accountants kind of found their way around what you took through five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, and so on. In fact, if I had to say who is perhaps, the, you know, groups, they're lovely people, but some of the groups who are most responsible for complexity are the legal profession and the accounting profession because they've spent a lot of their time trying to find their ways around what was the intention of what you had put in, you being the Chancellor or the government, through a previous bill. But the Chancellors, of course, Chancellors and Exchequers don't sort of stand up each year and say, I'm not going to have a budget. They stand up each year and they say, I am going to have a budget. And that always adds to things. And then, of course, businesses, they sort of look at tax and they go after their advisors and they say, you know, I want to pay my fair share, but is there any way that I can minimise my tax bill? All perfectly legal, legal. They find a way. Tax policy advisor comes up. They say, do this instead of doing that. And you'll get there. And actually, it's all us lot as well. You know, I don't know many people who really deep down are prepared to put their hand up to paying more tax I know they'll say that when they're asked by a survey, you know, would you pay more tax for this or more tax for that? The reality is they don't. <coughs> and they like their bit of tax relief. They like their bit of change. They like a chance to say, I'm going to let you, I'm going to raise this threshold, or I'm going to give you uh, another scheme. And all that adds to the complexity. So there's a whole chunk of history and human nature and that sounds like my phone going off, so I do apologise. It'll switch itself off in a minute. I switched off the phone, but not the iPad, and the two are linked. I apologise. I buy all champagne afterwards. <laughs> no, I lie. Um, but there's a whole, there's the reasons of history, and there's the reasons of human nature, business, the reasons that we live in a complicated world, the reasons that we're an international trading uh, nation, means that tax will always be complicated that whilst the desire to simplify will be there, it will be complicated. Now, have a look at what was the original remit of the Office of Tax Simplification. It said, when it was created in July 2010, that it was going to identify areas where complexities in the tax system for both businesses and individual taxpayers can be reduced, and then to publish the findings for the Chancellor to consider ahead of his, next, of his budget. That was its original remit. In many respects, it's still the original remit, but we have developed it since then. No entity should remain static, and how you deliver the remit can change. It changes from incumbent to incumbent, but you also need to uh, evolve over time. And indeed, the OTS evolved very quickly, because, of course, when it was set up that first time, it had a sort of probationary year. At the end of the probationary year, how did we do? 
and I wasn't there. The answer was that it produced two reports. One was on the review of tax relief. The second was on the review of small business taxation. Chancellor accepted a whole load of the recommendations, put them through the budget. Yahoo! The OTS was then on its way. So it started, got through its probationary year fine. And after that, it then undertook a whole range of reports. A lot of these ideas had actually come from uh, the tax community itself, who for many, many, many years had said, we need some of the things that, that some of these things looking at. And so they looked at employee benefits and expenses. They looked at uh, some of the legislation on employment schemes. They looked at some of the tax thresholds and so on. And in all, in those first few years, produced reports with something like in all about 500 recommendations up which more than half have been implemented and there's still a chunk that sit there and sit there on the block. It's probably though worth saying what the OTS can and cannot do and I say this to the audience and I've said it very many times in the short three years in which I've been the chairman. I mean the first thing is it can only look at those things that come within the remit of, of the Treasury. So whilst people may want us to look at business rates, business rates is not a Treasury matter. Social security items are always coming up. Social security is not us. And indeed, social security seems to be not anybody's at the moment, but you know, it is a very important area. It inevitably impacts and impinges on, on tax issues. We've been thinking about how we can get to some of the tax aspects of Social Security, but, you know, Social Security, or welfare, as I should call it, that goes elsewhere. And so it is important just to say what, what, is our, what are our perimeters and what are for others. And the second thing that we don't do is we don't do tax rates. And again, I've been asked this a lot, why don't you do tax rates? And I would say, what I say in reply to that is this that the day this country gives tax rates to an unelected quango that you cannot get rid of is the day that we really have gone a long way from democracy. You have to be able to both vote for and vote out people. You cannot give something as important as rates to an unelected quango. Now, I came in, as uh, you may know, um, in 2016. It feels like it's a lot longer ago than that, I have to say, but it was 2016 and then Paul Morton took over from the original tax director, John Whiting, shortly after that. And I said at the start what its remit was and I said then that we thought about how we should evolve the remit. I mean, self-evidently to say we're just going to you know, remove 10% of pages of how many thousands of pages of the tax code or take 20 million words out of a, yeah, 2 million words out of a 20 million word tax code is an irrelevancy. The question about tax simplification is more like a customer or consumer uh, issue. What is it and who is it that is going to benefit from changes? Is it big companies? The answer is probably not because they've got all their own tax advisors and for them, you know, life is in a somewhat different place. There are a great many highly um, qualified, very erudite people across the entirety of the tax community 
who quite correctly say those chunks within the tax code that simply don't work. And you look at those chunks and you see that they're absolutely right, they don't work. But their relevance is to the few. So we stood back and we thought, how can we make the Office of Tax Simplification and what it does relevant? And the answer to that is, that, is, is the focus that we have taken over these last three years. And that is, look at what would be most appropriate, most beneficial to the individual, and what would be most appropriate and most beneficial to small companies. And getting put on a statutory uh, basis, a statutory footing, has helped that. We are, in fact, known as an independent office of the Treasury, not uh, actually a quango. And I can see why, because you can't have a bonfire of the quangos, a bonfire of the quangos, and then make one. But for all intents and purposes, an independent office of the Treasury equals a, a quango. Uh, being put on a statutory footing has been enormously helpful for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is it has given us a greater degree of independence. There's no two ways about that. Secondly, that we don't um, do the reviews in the way necessarily that we've done in the past. In the past, the reviews have been so-called given by the Chancellor to the OTS. I mean, for practical purposes, there's an awful lot of legwork and officialdom, and then something comes up the chain and it's agreed with whoever is the financial secretary of the day, and we get on and do the review. We still do some of that, but we also, the second aspect of it we do are our own initiative reports, and we have two lots of that, two sorts of that. We do own initiative reports in areas where we really need to shine a light on difficult issues, and the second is looking at the way the world of work or other aspects um, are evolving. So whilst we stick within the remit of identifying areas of complexity, we're saying some of what the work we do is still uh, official types of reviews, if you like, which we've agreed with ministers, which are properly published, which are laid before Parliament, where we get formal responses. But we do second sorts of reports where we're pretty in detail, but we're shining areas, shining light on complicated areas, bringing them up, so then it can be thought through. What is it in this where a change can take place which would be most beneficial? <coughs> and the third is in that looking ahead direction. We also, we try to roll the ground, because whilst there is a huge temptation to come out with a report with a load of recommendations and then toss it over the wall at HMRC or Treasury and say, here you go, chaps, go and do something about it. That's quite complicated. That is quite difficult for governments to do. And firstly, tax is all legislated for, which means you've got to unlegislate for stuff. Secondly, there is always an interaction that takes place. So, you know, one has to recognize this. Thirdly, what goes in? A finance bill is not necessarily what comes out of the finance bill. I know that. I've served on finance bill committees. You get changes. And lastly, because one has to recognize that if you really do want some changes, and especially in a scenario where there's not really much of a majority in Parliament, you need to get a broad upswell of opinion, a wider opinion than just you know, an inner core, that these changes can be discussed and they can be beneficial. Rolling the ground, rolling the grass, whichever expression you want to use, 
is a very important matter. And trying to do that is something that I think we've been pretty successful about over the last three years. We do ask for comments. We do ask, we put up questions. We do ask for people to engage. And a lot of people have always engaged, and I thank them for that. But we now have a wider engagement. We have on individual issues, we have members of the public. We have small businesses actually getting involved with us directly. That, I think, is what rolling the ground is about. And if you can get that broad consensus, when Parliament finally gets unblocked and can get its eyes on other things, it enables some of the work that we've started off and we're getting going off to be done. But my last point is this. Anything is all about the art of the possible. And this will be the case with your report, Gemma, as well. It is, you have to give government something that it can do, not something that it can't do. So if you can give it something that it can do, or something that needs to be done in a way of doing that, then you'll get it through. But if what it is that you really want them to do is sweep away all reliefs and give a flat tax, they can't do that. So there really isn't any point in doing it. It may be a theoretical possibility, and certainly if you start from scratch like Estonia or Lithuania or whoever, but we are a far more complicated country. We've been around it a long time it being tax, it being international trade, and it being our tax code. So it's about the art of the possible. Give government things they can do, then you'll get them done, but make it difficult for them, and it'll be a lot harder. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just want to pick up on a couple of the specific points that you, yeah. you made there. I mean, you talked about the constraints in the OTS not being able to look at things like business rates and yeah. national insurance contributions because those are outside the remit of the Treasury. But is that the right constraint to be imposing on the OTS? Or would it actually make sense to expand that? Um, yes, a lot of things. You can expand the OTS and you can expand its remit and then expand its people and expand what it does. You're absolutely right. You can do that. And um, we have given some thought, obviously, internally as to whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, and and, and uh, there is no answer to your question. There's no right answer. So what we do do is where we get commentary and thoughts and ideas in, which are actually outside our current remit, is we, we, we mention them. We don't walk away. We don't say, oh, well, you know, um, uh, we, we can't talk about business rates, therefore we haven't mentioned it. We would say, you know, we heard from 250 businesses and, have, and everybody mentioned business rates and the concern about business rates, and these are the reasons why, you know. From our report, these are the recommendations, but you may want to look at business rates. So we kind of do it like that. Um, I think that as the OTS evolves, um, it, it can have a broader remit, I would agree. Um, I think that where we stand right now, uh, the OTS needs to earn that broader remit. And part of that is that not only um, externally, but also within all this sort of Westminster Whitehall melee, they have to be comfortable with expanding a remit. So it's, it's, on, it's on a path. There's not a right or wrong about this. At the moment, I, we need to concentrate on what we're doing and do it well. I mean, you sort of touched on this in your remarks mm. that simplicity in the tax system isn't everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think 
the OTS could play a more constructive role if it perhaps had a, a slightly broader remit to be able to consider other types of reforms that don't go into the tax rates, mm. but nonetheless would make a better tax system. Yeah, well, we think we're doing that, you see. Um, and I will point to you, uh, for example, the, the work that we've started on technology, mm. because actually the use of technology can make anything complicated quite simple. Um, my iPhone that, that rang linked to my iPad. I mean, you know, I'm a complete burke at these things, but even I can press the buttons and, you know, find the keypad. It, what is behind that is pretty complicated stuff, okay? So if you think of that in that context, tax code is pretty complicated stuff. But if I've got some simple app that sits on the top of it, if I'm you know, self-employed, if I'm an individual, if I've got savings or whatever, then all that complicated stuff you know, gets sorted for me and I've got my simple app on top. So that's why technology in this area is vital. And you're absolutely right. Technology isn't in the tax code. Technology isn't you know, tax rate. Technology is extremely important. You know, the use of um, AI is, um, is, is, uh, is something where everybody is going to increasingly find that they are engaged with. And the role of AI in um, something as simple as, let's say, the HMRC you know, tax helplines could be fantastic. I'll just tell you a brief story and then I'll come back to why. I, I, I know um, a, a German industrialist who is using his retirement time to invest in a whole variety of different companies. And I um, sat next to him at dinner probably about six months, maybe slightly longer ago, and he was telling me about an investment that he'd made in an AI company uh, the previous year. That AI um, had now replaced a call center. So, you know, 500 people have been replaced with this piece of kit. And, of course, the thing about AI is it learns as you go along. That's what the artificial intelligence piece is. It learns as it goes along in some form or other. Uh, and so this call center now had gone from 500 people to about 10 people and from everybody answering phones, this piece of kit. Now, the point of the story is this. So uh, he said, right, we're going to do um, a questionnaire of people who have been using this, who've been ringing up the call center, and see what they thought about it. And 90% of the people uh, who replied on the questionnaire had not realized that they were dealing with AI. They thought they'd been speaking with a person. Let's suppose that this chap had drunk too much wine and he'd exaggerated the story to me over dinner. Even if 50% of the people hadn't realized that it was technology that they were speaking to instead of people, what it is saying to you is the way that AI is really gathering up to be used in these areas where, they, where it has somehow the ability to talk to you. I don't know, I don't know how, but it does. Where it has the ability to respond in both a programmed and a learning way. Think how much that is going to help those who are trying to engage with the tax system. You know, instead of having people on the end of the phone and the phone doesn't answer and 20 minutes later and then, you know, they talk to you in a language where you haven't quite understand, you've got uh, AI and it's learning and then it goes on to the next people. So, so in that area, that's technology. In the area I said, the simple app that sits on the top is technology. Tax code sits there and your iPad on top. You know, technology we can't work away from. And that's one of the reasons why we started looking at technology and that's the the, you know, that's, it just sort of starts to lay the ground in the report uh, we put out last week. Great. 
Um, it, just talking about uh, laying the ground and going back to your, your rolling the ground mm. um, point about creating mm. some momentum and, and sort of acceptance of these proposals. Uh, could you give some examples of where you think that's been successful for you mm. recently? Yeah, I think inheritance tax. And inheritance tax, as we all know, is the most hated tax. People think that that's sort of you're taxing people on death. And of course, the, 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 the response that you get from everybody, and it's just in us that did that, that research, is the most hated tax. Only 5% of people of the states pay inheritance tax. More than 50% of um, executors have to do an inheritance tax form. That's why it's unpopular. So, you know, mum or dad's died. Yeah, you're, yeah, they were whatever, they were the one left. You're the son or daughter, and now you've got to do an inheritance tax form, even though the estate's never going to pay inheritance tax. I mean, how clever is that? Um, that's one of the reasons why it is very unpopular. But at the same time, it's very divisive. The minute somebody says inheritance tax, you know, it's, it's rich, poor, sort of wealthy, labor concern, you know what I mean? It goes straight into politics, you know, as in political politics, it goes straight into people thinking, well, the rich don't pay. You know, it's, it's got all the bad things about it. So it was not exactly the easiest report to do. We've done the first two reports. So what do I mean about railing the ground? Well, first of all, we put a questionnaire up on our website. Now, our website is that ghastly.gov.uk website. It's awful, isn't it? It is so awful. I do not know who it was who invented that site, but it is ghastly. So even though you got to the OTS through the .gov website, we got 3,000 responses. And I think that is more than the government got for its industrial strategy. So here we are. We've got 3,000 responses to our IHT questionnaire. Um, which was, it was, was really, really good. And it, and it wasn't sort of, I don't want to do this type of response. It, they were constructive. And well, of course, we got it from the tax profession, we got it from policy people, we got it from council well, but 3,000, that was a lot. And we actually, in our, so in our first report, we first of all explained exactly, you know, how inheritance tax works. Because one of the things that have come zooming up from all these responses is that people didn't like forms, they didn't understand it, you know, they didn't know what was exempt, they didn't know, you know, why there were so many sort of different, different parts to it. So, so there's a whole bit where you can actually make it simpler and clearer and, and easier. Um, and we went out and we talked to lots of groups and, uh, uh, and we also um, talked to interested journalists. Now, when we actually produced that first report, not only you know, was it internally agreed, and our board is external people, but also from the Inland Revenue and from the Treasury, but it got a sensible commentary, and that was from the popular press as well. So we didn't get the, oh, well, this is all about, you know, we want to let the rich off tax, or all those sorts of comments that come. It was sensible. And that enables us to get to the second report, where we look at some of the contentious areas, and we will do that in a reasoned way. That's what I mean by rolling the ground. And as part of that, there is now a couple of tax groups in Parliament, and so we speak with them, we send things to them, we, we try and talk through 
as many of the points as we possibly can and well in advance. So we don't just pick up some ideas and then go da-da in the public domain. We, 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 we have a discussion. We get other people's ideas. We put it all together. We talk it out. We go and speak to people. We put stuff on our website. We send out questions. We send a second set of questions. That's what I mean about rolling the ground, and I think that is one of the successes. I should, I should, say, I should say, just to add to that, if I may, that you know, we, we're doing um, the, uh, looking at uh, some of the, the business issues. We start off looking sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the life cycle of, 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 of businesses. Um, we did the first report, we've got, we've got, so we're doing some, some further work on that. And we, we, again, we put a whole load of questions out, again, on this ghastly website. And we've got just under 300 responses. And from the 300 responses, an awful lot of that are directly from small businesses themselves. So we've, we seem to have managed to reach out. We've not ignored all our traditional um, contributors, and they've, they've done a fantastic uh, amount of contribution, very grateful to them. But the OTS people, um, both on the board and the OTS team themselves, and I think how we're approaching it means that we've now managed in that outreach to, 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 to be a little bit more all-embracing. And the more you can engage the end consumer, and that's what, you know, you, you might not eat and drink tax, but boy, you pay it, you know. So the more the, you engage the end consumer in where you're going and what you're doing and why you can do some things and not others, the more you're running the ground. And we're obviously quite a moment of change for the OTS. You're stepping down as chair. Bill Godwell has just replaced Paul Morton as yeah. tax director. What does the future look like? for the OTS, what are the kind of challenges and opportunities going forward? Um, well, the, the opportunities are obvious uh, in the sense that there's so many things we could do. <laughs> but the opportunities are absolutely A to Z and super nuts. You know, they're there um, they're, uh, on, on issues. It has the opportunity to pick and choose amongst those issues of which a piece of it is looking at the future which I sincerely hope that they would take. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, we loosely talk about the gig economy. Both my sons are giggers. What, what does that mean? It means that they don't want to go and work for anybody. They want to be able to use their skills to pick up pieces of work, you know, jobs. Um, they may do more than one at the same time, or they may do you know, three months, six months, then do another one. That's how they want to work. That's how their friends want to work. And of course, that is how a lot of the young people are moving uh, to that sort of way of work. Help by IT, it's part of their life. What, I don't know, the number of gigas, it's somewhere around six million. So what the gigger has to do is first of all, find their work, increasingly it comes from platforms. And secondly, at the end of the year, they've got to do their tax return. So the piece of work which we are looking at, starting to look at, is can the platforms pay, play a role in, I'm going to call it PAYE light. Because actually, it is easier to pay your tax as you go along rather than have a bill at the end. The platforms themselves are not all, they're constructed in different ways, as we all know. But a whole chunk of the platforms, you know, are constructed in a way where they could do that. Now, this isn't a, 
This is, this is neither an early cell, uh, nor is it a compulsion. But what it is, is starting to think about what are the propositions for the future way in which people work, and the future way which would be helpful all the way you know, round the piece to help them pay their, their tax as they go. After all, we're used to paying taxes ago if you mm. do normal employment. Um, I appreciate that we've got some professions of which, you know, barristers, of course, are one who've always done it a different way. And no doubt, in one respect, you call barrister a gigger, but if there's a barrister in this room, I apologise profusely. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. But I think, you know, you know what I say, it's, it's, this is not, a, this is not a, a solution. This is a proposition that we need to start thinking about, yes, as the OTS, more widely across government as a country. Because as people use technology to, to live where they want to live, to work how they want to work, and where they work, and the frequency with which they are mobile between not just jobs, but pieces of work, projects, then we need to think about what would be the easiest and simplest way for them to pay tax. So that, I've, I've, I'm spending an awful lot of time answering your questions, and I do apologise, but it's that sort of look at the future, which I think is also a big opportunity for the OTS. Great. Well, I will now open up to the really challenging questions from the floor. Um, do stick your hands up. Um, if you're happy to say who you are and where you're from, please do so, but please be aware that it is being and live streamed. And if you're not, not, it's rank it cowardice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angela will judge you, I won't. <laughs> so we'll go to Robert first and then over here. Um, uh, uh, let's gather a few questions. And hi, I'm Robert from Tax Justice UK. We're a new campaign group for a fairer tax system. Um, one of the things that has been hinted at is there's actually quite a lot of agreement in many areas of the tax system from experts and think tanks and economists about what reform should look like. So for example, that we should reform the way we tax labour um, or that we should reform the way we tax property. Council tax is a, an out-of-date system. You then go to talk to politicians and they say, oh, I agree with you in theory, but the politics of this is impossible. So I'd be interested if you could sort of expand the idea about rolling the law, like how do we build yep. political space to get some of these bigger reforms where there's a lot of agreement that goes across the political spectrum, but politicians at the moment say that's just far too hard. Yeah. Great. So can we go here and then to Edward for the first three? Uh, sorry, Elliot. Uh, sorry, one question here. My name is Leonard Baton. M many centuries ago, I was a member of the Inland Revenue. Um, you said, and I entirely understand why, that you uh, are not concerned with matters involving the DWP, but there are considerable interactions between tax and yeah. benefits which concern individuals. Um, there is the Social Security Advisory Committee, but it has a pretty different role from the ATS. And I just wondered whether there is a way in which, without breaching the main point that you don't, in, yep. you, you're not involved with DWP, that you could move further into those interactions. Yep. And can we go to Edward, the third question? That, I have to say, is cheating. <laughs> um, Ed, Edward Troop. Um, uh, he was the head of the HNRC and on the board of the OTS uh, uh, and, and gave birth to it, if you and see what I mean. And therefore very well informed to ask a question. So. Um, <laughs> Stop there. 
can I ask my question now? No. <laughs> Carry on, um, Edward. Look, um, it's been excellent working with you on, on the OTS. He says uh, quickly. It was, it, it's really good hearing your comments because, in a sense, you tackled the two issues which caused us pause at, you know, when the OTS was established, which is, what was it for? What mm. was its remit? And, and you know how could it function? What what were effectively its levers? And on the first of those, I think you absolutely you know got to a point which you know I freely admit took us rather longer to get to. That this is a consumer issue. Mm. Um, you know this is all about the consumer. It's all about the you know the, as it were the retail consumption of, of, of tax. And and you know you've done great stuff there. Um, I'd sort of just digress to say, you, you've talked about reaching out. Uh, we always thought it was a great, great uh, way of you taking fire away from the Treasury. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. The, the OTS, you know, we put the OTS out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Take, take all the nutters and loonies and uh, uh, they'll go to, direct into the OTS and that'll be better. Michael, <laughs> Jack, Michael Jack and John White did a great job. But I, I, I think the, the interesting point is, what, what are your leaves? Now, you said that you, you didn't go to rates because that's political, uh, and the right, effectively, the constitutional right to raise tax absolutely has to rest democratically with Parliament, and I completely agree with that. But in a sense, I'd, I'd sort of ask you a question. Well, sorry, but my first point, which is also a question, is why? Because actually all tax changes are political, and even a minor change will affect somebody's tax liability. Correct. So why should you, you know, not have anything to do with rates? I mean, because you're not going to effectively have the power to change tax, so why not make recommendations on whatever you like, securing the knowledge, quite rightly, that Parliament, Government, Her Majesty of Parliament, will make decisions. So my first question is, why, why did you, you constrain yourself um, in that way? And, and the second point is that, um, while you quite rightly point out that a lot of complexity is, is effectively exogenous, I mean, it's, it's caused by behaviours out there, the reality of the world out there, there's quite a lot of endogenous com complexity generated by Parliament, by politicians, for mm. short-term, you know, really Absolutely. not very justifiable reasons. Absolutely. And, uh, I've been there, you know, done it. Um, I'm embarrassed with some of the things that have got my name on it, or not got my name on it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, actually, if it's not you, how should we constrain Parliament without taking away their power, constrain ministers from doing, you know, quite frankly, things that are silly. And if you want to look at the height of silliness, look at the paragraphs in the budget document when in 2001, I think it was, or 2000, when Gordon Brown reduced the, the VAT on uh, children's car seats. And, you know, as a bit of bogus justification for a completely unjustifiable measure which profited nobody except the manufacturers of children's car seats. It's hard to beat, but, you know, it's one example amongst thousands. You know, what constraints should there be, either through the OTS or others, mm. on ministers' ability to do silly things? Are you part of it or should there be something else? Sorry, slightly lengthy question. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fair point, and I also have got some answers for you as well. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, you know, in the order which I was asked the questions. Um, and the first is sort of campaign for tax reform and the fact that there's uh, some very sensible ideas around, or a lot of support for some ideas around. Politicians will say to you, no, no, we can't go there, it's all too difficult. It is pretty difficult, actually. But what I, I, what I would recommend to you is this. The first is that actually you've got to work out who is disadvantaged by whatever it is that you propose and work out how you deal with that. 
because, you know, we're a big population. Uh, even if you disadvantage 5%, 95% is fine. That 5% is whatever it is, a couple of million people, something like that, you know. I mean, it's a lot of people. That's a lot who, you know, it's not going to benefit. It's a lot who are actually, it's actually going to hurt them. So you need to work out who they are, what they are, and what you're going to do about it. We did a report, in fact, it was a long and detailed report, and more, uh, and took a lot of effort on bringing together income tax and national insurance. Because everybody said, four years, and rightly so, they're both taxes anyway, so why have two lots rather than one? And so we had a look at this, and we produced our report, and the obvious way to proceed is not to put income tax into the same sort of way as national insurance tax, in national insurance, i.e. goes up in steps and all that sort of thing, but have it as a sort of progressive um, arrangement. And we, um, uh, on and, and the conclusions that we came to was, you know, broadly speaking, you're absolutely right, that there could well be a lot of benefit in, simpli because in, in just simplifying, just putting the two together. The problem is that you would impact um, a huge proportion of the working population, um, of which many millions would be paying more. And that's just from the um, employee's national insurance perspective. From the employer's national insurance perspective, you would do a net transference of, of um, paying national insurance from, broadly speaking, the south to the north, and from white collar to blue collar, you're completely unacceptable, unless you bought it out. And if you bought out your change, because you know you can buy out a change, you're looking at a few billion. So therefore, this uh, you know, which has become one of the totems of uh, what it is that you know how you should simplify the tax system, i.e., bring national insurance and income tax together. You, you know, from a complexity perspective, you're right, but from a doability perspective, you know, it, 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 it doesn't really cut the mustard. And if you go around businesses anyway, you find, I mean, I've, I've run a number of businesses. I've always outsourced payroll for exactly those reasons. We've got specialist payroll companies all up and down the country. So, you know, there's, I, I'm, again, I'm being long-winged, but what I'm trying to explain to you is that any proposition, you've got to work out what are the downsides, who am I going to impact, how much is it going to cost, and how am I going to deal with it. Do that, and you'll get somewhere. I'm not surprised about council tax that you find there's refusal to move. You're probably too young to remember when we went from the old rate system to the poll tax which was absolutely fine in principle and absolutely appalling in practice, where we managed to shaft all sorts of people, not actually you know, a, a, a huge number, but sufficient for one having to run away from that policy. And that is an example of not really seeing that the downside is, in some respects, even more important than those who you benefit. Right, you're dead right, sir, on uh, welfare, absolutely right indeed, we can't run away from it. In fact, we've got a project up and running, which is all about, with, with one of the, the um, um, uh, welfare groups who's 
whose acronym I just completely escapes me at the moment, where we're predominantly looking at all that interchange where, you know, you, you, you're not eligible for any welfare, and then you are, and then you're not, and there you are. So, because there is this, this borderline where things cross over all the time. So with that group, you're looking at it, and I think you're absolutely right. That is a place where we can go, which uh, is very much about the interaction between tax and, um, tax and welfare, and we should be doing work like that, and, and we're, we're starting to do it. And I turn to uh, Edward. Um, first, on I mean, you're absolutely right in theory that anything that one does in the whole of sort of tax ultimately rolls through to somebody either getting something or not getting something, or you know something happens. Um, the reason that I, I think that to the, the, my, my view on the tax rate question is that there are some things which ultimately have to be and have to be the responsibility of the elected government of the day. And um, tax rates is one. It uh, is very much into manifestos. It's into views of society. Uh, it's, it's who pays what and how much for whom. So it's deeply into the thinking of the political parties in this country. Uh, and that's why, and that is where it needs to stay. And I do come back to an earlier point that I make, that it is important that you can vote people out for their decisions, or indeed vote them in. You can't vote in or out a quango. Um, there will be times when the OTS can make some commentary. That is slightly different, but I don't think it should be the one that does tax rates. However, you've, your, your other point, and that is that um, um, over decades, generations, chancellors of all political parties, hues, you know, uh, uh, have come up with their own pet project and their pet ideas, which actually, once they've had to be put into practice, are shown to be wanting, is entirely correct. And there are some, there are in that area some roles for the OTS. Now, we've just done a paper on savings, which actually has ventilated the fact that, you know, there's multiple different types of savings vehicles, and none of them match up. In the business life cycle paper, we showed how the different parts of, of the uh, business, uh, business life, they're eligible for different types of either reliefs or something there, you know, enterprise allowance or whatever. And they can make a decision at year five, which by the time they got to year 25 is manifestly the wrong decision because you've got, you know, something else which would have kicked in now doesn't kick in because of one. So, you know, again, what that's, these are parts of that, those types of projects where you shine a, life, a light on difficult areas. Now, once we've done a report like that, shine a light on the difficult areas, you don't say, okay, done that, part that, you know, put that in the cupboard and leave it to gather dust or whatever the internet version of dust is. We then discuss the key issues with Treasury, with HMRC, and see where we can do some detailed work to take it forth further forward. I was just going to probe on that, because I guess what you've mm. just described is kind of shining a light on all the problems yeah. that exist already. I think Edward's point was a little bit more, how do we constrain politicians from not doing that sort of thing again in future? Oh, well, the answer is you tie them down and put some stickers across the mouth. <laughs> you know, I mean, the chances, you, you, you can't do it. 
You can't do it. And do you know, I think it's almost worse now than it was all those years ago when I was there. Oh, like, you know, when I was a girl. Um, because, you know, at, at least we didn't have Twitter storms. You know, we didn't have sort of uh, hundreds of thousands of people emoting through some, you know, vehicle or other. You more or less had to pick up the phone and write a letter, you know. Um, and that did give... The, the, now what happens seems to me, is that the very nature of communication means that a politician feels that they've, you know, they've either got to agree or stand up or say something. Most problems are quite complicated. You know, most things are not cured by a superficial soundbite, nor indeed does a Twitter storm necessarily mean they understood the issue in the first instance. You need to pause and think about it. So maybe the answer to your question is not what I said, stick into the seat and put sellotape over the mouth, that that might be a good idea, but not to, to try and actually at least assist uh, the politicians to make decisions in these areas from not feeling they've got to respond instantaneously. They'll, they'll all still want their initiatives and what you, what looks a good idea out of power never looks quite such a good idea when you're in power, because you know, <laughs> all the information's there. But at least I think that there is something in which everybody involved in public life ought to hold hands together. And that is say, life is complicated. Issues are not straightforward. Do not react instantaneously. Do not use something that happens over the, here as, as a, a weapon to beat your political par partner with, because you will regret it. And in fact, we do see a certain amount of, you know, of the respect of parliament politicians going downhill. And part of it is that, the sort of instantaneous reaction. And so don't instantaneously react, help in that way. But it's, who's to know? Who's to know? He wants to come back. I don't want to abuse about to come back. But the question is really whether the MTS or some other body could be an institutional, of an institutional role yeah. on future action, not just yeah. in the past. Yeah, I th well, uh, yes. Um, perhaps there's this, yes, she says with, with a, a tone in my voice, so let me explain what I mean. I, first of all, and you and I have talked about this anyway, independently, um, Edward, the reason, you know, behind the OTS has always been a view that actually what should happen is somebody should look at legislation after it's been passed and see whether it's fit for purpose. And whilst the OTS isn't quite in that space, it's as near in that space as, uh, as anything that we really have at the moment. Um, and we call that looking at the stock. Looking at the flow would be new stuff coming along and saying, hang on, there's stuff here that isn't going to work. If we were going to do that, you'd certainly need to increase the size of the OTS very considerably from where it is at the moment. And you'd also need to bring it in as an insider in those budget discussions. Is it possible? The answer to that is yes. Um, is it, is it wise? Well, I think it would be helpful. Um, and I would think that that is something that needs to be on the agenda in the future. Um, on whose agenda? Treasury's agenda, HMRC's agenda, OTS agenda, i.e. broad trust that the OTS can do that role. And then the needs, there's the political overlay. Would political, you know, would politicians be prepared to do that? I think it might help. I think it might help. I think it might at least mean that there was uh, a different type of voice at the table. 
but it certainly would not bring perfection. Nothing is ever going to stop any chancellor from having their pet project, any manifesto from having a load of rubbish in it, which then the, you know, if that particular party comes to power, they feel that they've got to implement it. You know, so it is a role. It would, it would change the OTS, and that is no doubt some sort of discussion they have in the future. But right now, as I keep saying, the important thing is the OTS does its role effectively, it gets respect for its role, it gets widespread understanding of what it does, uh, it has a broad reach, and its conclusions are ultimately implemented. Great, we have time for a very few quick why questions. Don't, why don't we so, take them all? What's yeah. the time? Wow. Um, I think we have less than 10 minutes left. Okay. So all take might be all the bit, questions and um, I promise I'll answer quickly. Here. Yeah. Um, then we'll take some of the back. Um, so go over there and then over there. I'll try and be quick. I'm Carolyn McFarlane from Common Vision. We run a program on public dialogue around the tax system. Um, so just to pick up on your customer and user point, um, you could argue that you can have the simplest system in the world but people might still might not understand it if it's not explained in the mm. right way so what would be on your wish list for public education and understanding in, in in that sense and maybe related but might not be um i just wanted to ask you angela about your own i suppose um career journey and whether you can think of any comparisons or read across um from previous roles um whether that's energy or banking or whatever and how that you know any particular um, comparisons or lessons that you've drawn from in in the okay. OTS. Great. Um, and the gentleman there, and then one behind you earlier. Uh, many thanks. Chris Francis, SAP. Um, quick uh, ask for commentary, really, on the budget secrecy process. Um, building on the previous discussion and your statement about restricting to uh, scope of Treasury, the budget secrecy process from an outsider's point of view is pretty much anything can go into budget secrecy. If you are lucky, you get a consultation on the technical implementation. And then because it's a political set of decisions, you get very little scrutiny from many of the parliamentary processes for effectiveness and enforcement, such as PAC. Ken Warwick, until recently I was a member of the Regulatory Policy Committee, RPC, uh, currently chaired by Anthony Brown. Uh, the RPC scrutinises all government regulation affecting business, apart from tax, which is excluded uh, from its remit. Uh, one of the things it does is to look at the flow of new regulations, so this speaks to Edward's question, and it also validates the numbers that go into the government target for reducing the cost of regulation, which again excludes tax. So my question is, is there a case for either bringing all forms of regulation under one body or having the same sorts of disciplines in the two areas? Great. Um, so is there anybody that? else? Yeah. Well, so this one at the back. Wow, there are three more questions. Okay. Well, Sorry. Oh, there's three more. Beg your pardon. Um, let's take them all. Um, if people do feel they need to leave, bang on two o'clock, please feel mm -hmm. free to quietly make your way out. We'll go at the back and then one there and one there. Thanks. Hi, um, Matt Bardrick from DEFRA. I wonder if you think a focus on simplifying tax means that we don't put as much focus on using tax as a policy instrument for new measures? Hi, um, uh, James Mee from the Office for Budget Responsibility. Um, I just wanted to pick up on kind of the, the OTIS's main remit, basically, which was um, what is the appropriate metric for kind of measuring the success or failure of 
of tax simplification. Um, because we, we've talked about in some of our reports about, you know, a measure of, you know, the, the average length of finance acts and things like that. But, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah. it's obviously, you know, some people criticise that and I'd just like to Absolutely. get your thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. One, one more. Beg your pardon. Thanks, Tim Wallace. Happy to get out of here. Sorry. <laughs> um, a very similar question, really. I wondered if you could quantify how much money you've saved taxpayers or how much time you save people. Okay. And <laughs> what a good idea. I really wanted that question. <laughs> okay, so starting with the lady here. Um, what should we do? Have we got a role in, ed in education? Everybody's got a role in education, but you know, um, I would say to you, I entirely agree actually, that, um, and it's a discussion we've had internally, that you're still not going to, however much you sort of try to explain tax to people, there is a certain ability to instantly switch off, which I, I doubt is uh, anything other than perfectly normal. So, you know, tax is something that you pay. Why the hell do you need to sort of understand it? So, um, whilst education is a very good idea, um, the thing that I've learned from my, uh, some of my career, which is the fortunes that have been spent in this country on financial education, it still doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. And so there has to be kind of other responsibilities that, that are taken to try and make at least what people pay as, so they just, you know, they feel it's reasonable. Because a lot of people feel taxed with their gut, you know, their emotion, well, am I paying a fair amount or am I paying too much, you know, it sits there. So wonderful idealism to say, you know, publicly educated, totally happy to play our part. Realism says to me, we've never got there in financial education. We may well never get there with tax. Next one was, uh, next one this was... Budget secrecy. Process. Budget secrecy. Um, yes, it's a difficult one, budget secrecy. I mean, you can both entirely agree with it and entirely disagree with it at the same time. Um, the, uh, uh, <coughs> the, the, I mean, budgets, the interesting thing about about what happens these days with budgets is they leak on purpose. In my day, they leaked on by accident. So we have actually got to uh, a scenario in which some of that which is going to be the budget is sort of tried out in advance, you know, and then they say, oh, it was a, a leak and they don't do it. Or if we've got reasonable acceptability, da-da, load up the hold, it is uh, in um, uh, the budget. It is immensely frustrating, though, for people who are in receipt of having to deal with whatever was in the budget um, and there isn't really a particular solution but there are a couple of things that have been strongly recommended which you know they, they sound immensely boring uh, and they're called roadmaps so you have a roadmap to whatever changes you're making in corporation tax you have roadmap to whatever changes you're going to make uh, in business you may not say it's going from x to y but at least there is some form of well laid out roadmap so you know that there are certain changes that are coming along you can get ready for the changes because the thing that is most irritating and very difficult is when something happens you have to change your plans it's going to cost you money you know and you, you simply, you know, it, it's just blown a hole in all your planning. So roadmaps, boring things, pretty vital, and I think I would put a lot of my effort in there. Um, the Regulatory Policy Committee, yes, we've, we have had an engagement 
with them. The, the OTS has had some engagement with them. Do I, would I put everything under one place? The answer is no, because if you put it all under one place, you just now got another big bureaucracy that, that sits there. What I think that there is, is I think that there is some, some, some learning that takes place from either side. You know, a bit back to where I was before, that tax is different to regulation, or they might say the end product is the same, it costs people uh, and issues uh, money. And whilst we have got the, the, the regulatory committee, and there's supposed to be a reducing of regulation, none of us feels like it, so what it might do is quite a good job in reducing the numbers that come down the road, but you know, regulation is with us, it keeps on going, I don't think it does financial regulation, I don't think that goes anywhere near it. There's, 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 there's different sort of techniques, and I think that there's no one way, and uh, everybody sort of linking together and having some common discussions, I think, is, is an extremely uh, helpful way forward. DEFRA. Uh, who was the DEFRA man? The DEFRA is at the back. Okay. Simplifying tax, not tax as a policy instrument. Can I say that I think one of the things, and I should have said it earlier, that makes tax more complicated is that it has, you know, it's facing in two ways at the same time. One is it collects money off people and businesses in order that it can spend it against a series of priorities which have broadly been agreed with the public through a general election. The second is that you then use tax, not just to, to raise money, but to try and get people to do things or not do things. If you, if you say one instrument, two things, you will always have an outcome which is kind of not where you wish to be. So from, from, from my perspective, I would actually do something rather different. And that is, I would say, tax is for, taxation is for raising money. And I would say, other areas of policy, we would use other instruments. But we do muddle up the two. It does happen. Um, and uh, I would not really agree with you that there is a, a, a focus on simplification rather than tax policy instrument. You know, it, it does it. It will continue to do it. If there's something more that you want done on plastic bags or whatever it is, keep on lobbying. Keep on lobbying. You'll get there. What is the appropriate metric? Who was the appropriate metric? You were the appropriate metric. Yeah, did, yeah very good point. Um, it, it can't be reducing the number of pages because, you know, you're going to get five or six hundred every time. It can't, so you can't do that. It can't be words, you know. Um, what can it be? Well, what we did is we did a survey, actually. Uh, it's probably about three years ago now. And that survey was... Um, uh, you, I, should have, I should have looked before I came. I can't remember the numbers, and I can't even remember the questions. But broadly speaking, it was all about, did you think the OTS did a good job, does a good job, what do you want the OTS to do more? And, you know, we got a whole variety of answers there. And so, in about a year's time, We'll do that survey again. And if that survey says, you know, we've done much better there, you've done much better there, you've done much better there, because you've concentrated on the things that are important to us, because you've reached out towards us, you may not yet be able to legislate for we don't have legislative powers, but at least you're talking about the right things, then that, I think, would be a driver of success. And the final question, do you, can you put any monetary value on your value? No. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Angela, for joining us. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much.